Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. In just a bit, we get a preview of the NerdEd podcast conversation with a Game of Thrones author, George R.R. R. Martin. It turns out he's just as obsessed with his characters as we are. I go to sleep at night thinking about them, and when I'm driving around, I think about them, and it just fills my life. But first, nearly one in five American adults have student loan debt. That debt is often carried by the students themselves, but it's also carried by parents and grandparents. New York University professor Caitlin Zaloom has a new book out. It looks at how the rising cost of college is putting tremendous pressure on middle-class families. Caitlin Zaloom joins me now. Welcome to Reset. Thanks, Jen. Glad to be here. So I just want to start with a definition, and that's how you are defining middle-class. I define middle class in a different way than many people will have understood it in the past. Usually we think about being middle class as an amount of income or maybe a position within a corporate hierarchy. But I think that our economy has changed so much that we have to start thinking about what middle class means for people around debt and particularly around college debt because being middle class has always meant opening up opportunities for children. And today, more than ever before, that means picking up the expenses to send children to college. So for your book, when you say you're talking to middle class families, how would you describe their financial situation? Those families make too much money to qualify for major federal grants, yet they cannot simply write a check for the full tuition room and board that their kids will require to go to college. That means that all of the families in my book, Indebted, are going through something I call the student finance complex. They are trying to save, possibly to invest, taking on debt and reaching for other forms of loans and financing to make college work. Explain a little about how we've seen the cost of higher education increase over the past few decades. One thing that's really remarkable about higher education today is that the experience of parents and the experience of students today are so very different. Back when the parents of today's college students were themselves in school, they faced much lower tuition and fees than they now see their children facing. That means that the difference in their experiences is vast. And it also means that when parents come to that moment where their children are going off to college, it oftentimes feels like an enormous shock that suddenly they're being faced with these incredible bills. What's led to this steep increase in the cost of higher education? That is a great question, and there are many different answers to it. I'll give you two. First, in public higher education, states have cut their budgets for their colleges and universities across decades now. The investment in higher education is extremely low. So I'll give you an example from the University of California, Los Angeles. For decades and decades, the UC system was one of the strongest educational systems in our country, and it was an incredible engine of mobility. The state really had a commitment to the UC system. Today, UCLA gets 7% of its funding from the state of California. 
when colleges and universities don't have the funding that they need, they have to raise tuition in order to find the funds to move their operations forward to deliver the education their students deserve. So that is one major reason why costs have gone up. Another reason is that the upper-level administrations of colleges and universities have expanded greatly. There are just many more highly paid administrators at colleges and universities across the board. That means that their salaries have to be supported by the funds that come in the door, and that means tuition raises. What seems to be built into the system are certain assumptions that are made about how families will save for college. What are some of those assumptions, and, and how does that intersect with race? Those assumptions are relatively new. It has really only been since the 1990s that, as a country, we presume that families and students should take on the burden of paying for higher education themselves. It was in the 1990s when loans expanded in a way that starts to look like what we have today. That came from a very conscious shift in political morality, what some people call the great risk shift, where individuals and their families are supposed to bear the costs of what we used to think of as collective endeavors, like providing higher education. Now, when we require families and students to take on that burden, it reproduces the inequalities that already exist. So the issue of race becomes absolutely central when thinking about how this loan system impacts our families and students. Especially African-American families simply come into the system without the same kinds of intergenerational wealth that white families can count on. Of course, not all white families, but white families for generations were the beneficiaries of things like expanded home values, and even education when it was free and very low cost. But because African-American families can't count on having the benefit of those wealth-building programs that were funded by the federal and state governments and which were supported by labor market discrimination in favor of whites— then African-American families then face a lag in what they can pay. So when we ask them to pay the same amount or in the ballpark of the same amount as white families, it's a much bigger burden. I'm not sure if you followed um, a story that happened here in Illinois. There were parents who would likely be described as middle class, and, and they found this legal loophole that allowed them to surrender guardianship of their child who was heading to college so that child could access need-based aid. And our reporters covering that story found that while these parents were more well-off than others, they also said they weren't able to take on the financial burden of paying for college education. So I'm curious how the expectation around what families can pay bumps up against other issues like saving for retirement. Yes, I, I did follow that story. It shows the kinds of lengths families are willing to go to in order to get their children to and through college. Now, that scam, as far as I can tell, that's exactly the word that we need to use to describe it, was about 
renouncing custodianship of their children. It's a fake of what a family might do in real disturbances. But the bigger part of that story is that there are actual families that are going through breakups, divorce, or estrangement for whom that provision is supposed to work to support students who are on their own and who need aid because their parents are not there to give it to them. One of the things that we see there is that students really do need the aid, but we tie that aid much too tightly to what their parents can offer them or not offer them. It is a very strange system that we've built that requires, on the one hand, family support, and then on the other hand, student contribution. It's a kind of Frankenstein of aid systems that we have built here in the, in the United States and across all 50 states. Well, also here in Illinois, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign is offering free tuition to some students who are Illinois residents and have a family income of $61,000 or less. I'm curious how some schools are able to provide that type of aid, but we're not seeing that model across the country. So the state of New Mexico is offering free tuition if that plan of the governors can get through the state legislature. The University of Michigan is also offering something called the Go Blue Guarantee for free tuition for students up to and around the median income of the state of Michigan. One of the issues, though, is that the costs of college are actually much broader than tuition alone. What educators call the cost of attendance is room and board as well and fees. It includes things like books and travel home. And for many students, particularly who are around or below a state's median income, that set of costs beyond tuition is actually heavier than the tuition itself. So even with discounted tuition, students and their families face a real challenge. Well, we see a lot of activism around student debt right now. We're hearing about it as part of the presidential campaign. What models are you looking to for examples of how the American system can be reformed to make college more accessible with less debt? I first think that we just have to look to our history. It used to be that higher education in the United States was free or extremely low cost, like in the example of the University of California that I was giving before. And that was for everyone. Today, we ask that higher education does so very much. It's supposed to educate students. It's supposed to prepare them for the world beyond school. But at the same time, we actually ask it to also be an engine of progressive reform that, in fact, our tax system really needs to be doing. So I am a proponent for free higher education. And I think at the same time, we need to be looking at our tax system for doing the sorts of leveling we're now asking higher education to do. Well, you conducted over 160 interviews with parents and students about debt and higher education. In talking to them, did you get a sense of how closely higher education remains connected to our ideas about success, even when getting that college degree may leave you thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt? College education remains such a core value for families. It was one of the great and I think revealing surprises in my research. 
There were very, very few parents that I spoke with who didn't want their child to be able to find their skills, to reach their potential, and to do that specifically through years in college, both in the classroom and through experiences outside of the classroom, too. When we talk about higher education as a policy problem, we tend to think of it as an issue around income. You know, people pay money now so they can get a higher income later. But for parents and students alike, what I heard was that they wanted education, I mean, of course, for economic stability, but for more than that, for aspiring to become the kinds of people those young Americans envisioned for themselves. And that is a real legacy of middle-class America that I believe we should all enjoy, including those who can't afford it today. So, Caitlin, with that in mind, what advice would you give to parents and students about how they should think about funding a college degree? That is a very tricky one because the bigger story is that we really cannot fix this except together. We really need to be pressuring our legislatures to fund higher education and for the federal government to be providing the means for students to get a college education and a college degree. But at the individual level, like what families can do tomorrow, they should think broadly about what makes an education a good one. And that means looking at a range of schools, a very wide range of schools, to try to see where they might be able to match the interests of young adults with the opportunities that are out there. Many parents and students today do focus on the status of a school. And in some ways, that is almost predetermined because the status of a school stands in for how well that school will be able to give a young adult a shot in their lives beyond graduation. But I think that the way to approach that college decision is to think really widely about what those possibilities might be and to look at schools that offer resources that the highest status schools might not. That's Caitlin Zaloom, author of Indebted, How Families Make College Work at Any Cost. She's also an associate professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University. Caitlin, thanks for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Greta Johnson is our midday news anchor here at WBEZ. She's also host of WBEZ's Nerdette podcast. And recently, Greta got to have the ultimate nerd out with the one and only George R.R. Martin. He's the author of the Song of Ice and Fire series that became the hit TV show, A Game of Thrones. Now, Greta, I know you were really excited for this conversation. What was Martin like to talk to? He was so nice. He was just super sweet. You know, I wasn't really sure. Like, I didn't even tell a lot of people I was doing it because you know that's one of those like you don't want to jinx it but he was just lovely it was really fun to chat with him were you surprised by anything he said you know I think the thing I was most surprised about so his publicist his staff ahead of time was pretty strict about Mm. like the list of questions that we weren't allowed to ask and a lot of them you know it's like questions that he's been asked a million times before largely you know when this next book is going to come out which he's been working (laughs) on for many years now yeah right like that's got to be exhausting and I think too they they didn't want me to ask about what he thought of the 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 latest seasons of Game of Thrones Mm -hmm. television show Mm -hmm. which weren't 
you know, didn't have source material to go on because the books weren't done. And a lot of people think that's why those seasons weren't as good as they could have been. Uh, for me, like, I'm not super interested in the, that either. Like, what I'm really interested in is just, like, what is it like to be George R. R. Martin, you know? Like, what a famous, fascinating nerd to get to chat with. And so my plan was to just sort of, like, talk about fan expectations in general, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, and see how much he was willing to talk about it. And he was actually willing to share a lot more about his writing process than I thought he would be, which was a really pleasant surprise. Well, speaking of fan expectations, did you have any expectations going into this that were sort of upended? Um, of talking to him. Yeah. I mean, he was just a lot more open Mm -hmm. about writing than I thought he was going to be, which was really fun. Yeah. Well, I want to play some of the conversation with Martin. And you start out by asking him how much time and space he spends thinking about the fantasy world he created, that being Westeros. Well, you know, that's an interesting question. That really varies. And it depends on uh, what I'm doing. But when I am actively writing, um, when it's really going well, and it doesn't always go well by any means. There are good days and bad days. There are good months and bad months. But when it's going well, I live in Westeros. I, I fall through the computer. I wake up thinking of you know Tyrion and Arya and, or Aegon the Conqueror, whoever I'm writing about. And uh, I go to sleep at night thinking about them. And when I'm driving around, I think about them. And it, it just fills my life. But in order to achieve this almost, uh, I don't know, Zen state of uh, obsession, uh-huh. I have to push away real life. Uh-huh. There are other writers who uh, I know like write four pages a day. They write in hotels. They uh-huh. write on airplanes. They write everywhere. I've never been one of those writers. You I, need to I, completely I, separate. I need, yeah. I need to have the whole day just to write, nothing else on my calendar. And it's a odd irony that uh, the the very success of Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire, the popularity of these books, has made it harder for me to write these books because the number of interruptions yeah, and distractions and other things have increased, uh, you know, doubled and tripled and increased tenfold and a hundredfold. You know, he basically went on to say that his fans wish he could write more, but he's just like, he's not that kind of writer, uh, quoting Stephen King, who says he can write six pages a day. Did you get a sense, a little more of a sense of, of about his world building process? Because I think about this, I mean, this exquisite world he's built in Westeros. I mean, that's how you get to that level of detail. Yeah, I didn't ask him super specifics, but I mean, I think it is really interesting to hear him talk about how he can't do it just like on an airplane, Mm -hmm. right? Like he has to completely disengage from real life to do it. And then it makes sense that like as this TV show becomes more and more popular, as he's going to more and more like Emmy Awards parties, there are just so many more distractions in his life that are keeping him from writing. So it's kind of this fascinating cycle, you know, where it's like the success of the thing is actually making it harder for him to keep creating it. Yeah. Well, you you gotten to both of your favorite uh, characters in A Game of Thrones, and here's part of that exchange. Oh, it's hard to pick one. I, I mean, know, uh, they're, they're all, all my great. children. You know, do you yeah. have a favorite child? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Tyrion Lannister is certainly yeah. a character that I've always loved. I mean, writing well, about. and Peter Dinklage just did Peter such Dinklage an is amazing, amazing job. He's, he's won four Emmys himself as best supporting yeah. actor. He's great. But also the kids were were marvelous. God, yeah. I mean, Macy Williams as Arya and Sophie Turner as Sansa and uh, Isaac as Bran. Um, they were incredible. Yeah. I think Brienne of Tarth is probably my favorite. 
Gwendolyn Christie. She is <laughs> she is amazing. She is amazing. You know, it's interesting in hearing him talk about about these characters. As an author, you know, he creates these people on on paper, and then to see them come to life on on the screen. Yeah. And to me, the the casting of Gwendolyn Christie was just a stroke of oh, utter luck and brilliance. Brilliant, <laughs> totally. Why totally. is she your favorite character? Oh, well, she's just so tough. I mean, I, I will say I was pretty disappointed by how her storyline mm. went in the in the last season. But like she was just so fierce and awesome. And like j- just to see even, you know, like I'm 5'10", so I'm like a fairly tall woman. But to like see her is just like, oh, my God, like what an amazing goddess human, you know? Yeah. Were you surprised by any of his choices? I think what I was most surprised by, which maybe I shouldn't have been, is like it's so interesting to talk to him because he reminds you that like the success of this show wasn't always obvious, Mm -hmm. right? You know, the fact that they just like picked these kids out and they had no idea how any of it would go, you know, and I think it often that kind of thing seems so inevitable from this side of it, right? Right. Where it's like, of course, everyone was going to watch Game of Thrones. It was going to be like one of the most popular TV shows ever in the history of TV. But like he had, you know, he was hoping they'd be able to get to the Red Wedding, you know, Mm. which is just so interesting to think about from this side of it, I think. What is it about this world that's drawn you in? I mean, I read Game of Thrones probably in like the early mid aughts the first book the first book yeah Mm -hmm. so it was well before and I think it was like maybe right as I finished reading it I heard it was going to be an HBO show eventually and I mean I don't know I grew up loving fantasy and sci-fi and dragons and all that stuff and it's just such a rich world with so many different characters it's just a fun place to be you know well Westeros was not fun all the time it was actually pretty brutal fair fair (laughs) it was pretty brutal Well, I mean, the thing that's been interesting to watch about this show is for people who who watched the television series but didn't read the books uh-huh. and had no idea what was what was coming, right. you know, and you just kind of want to warn them, say, honey, I, I, yeah. I just want to warn you about this next episode because it's going to be rough. <laughs> but people just didn't know. Yep. Well, you two also talked about, I mean, the future of fantasy uh-huh. TV, because it seems like this series has set a new bar for fantasy television. I mean, huge budgets, these huge battle scenes, weeks upon weeks of shooting, just battle scenes. Um, And you get into all of these fantasy TV shows like Lord of, well, not Lord of Rings, but His Dark Materials is coming on. Lord of Rings was filmed. And he shared his thoughts on fantasy continuing to reign on television. Now, I think if one or two of these shows succeed... Maybe not succeed on a Game of Thrones level, but succeed in that, oh, they have a nice five-year run on television. Mm-hmm. They get decent ratings. Maybe they win a few Emmys or something like that. If one or two of them succeed, television will be transformed. Then I think fantasy will become a genre of television, just like cop shows and lawyer shows. I mean, I you, love know, that. you never say, oh, a cop show? We already have a cop show. We can't do that. It's always, <laughs> oh, a cop show? Yeah, we'll put on another cop show. Um, <laughs> And as a fantasy reader, someone who has read many of these works and loves these works, that's the outcome I would like to see. The danger, of course, is that if all of these shows fail for one reason or another, then I think television, which is run by success, will back off from fantasy and say, oh, no, Game of Thrones was a a freakish one-at-a-time occurrence and it can't be duplicated, so we won't do it anymore. And obviously I don't want that to happen. 
That's author George R.R. R. Martin in conversation with WBEZ's own Greta Johnson. To hear the complete interview, download the Nerdette podcast wherever you get this podcast. And we're launching a new podcast here at WBEZ. It's called Nerdette Recaps His Dark Materials with Peter Sagal. His Dark Materials, if you're not familiar with it, is an award-winning fantasy trilogy by author Philip Pullman. Nerdette will be recapping the new HBO series based on the book, which debuts tonight at 8 Central. Other news you should know today, Chicago public housing residents will not be allowed to use or possess cannabis. The CHA sent out a notice this week saying federal law prohibiting marijuana use supersedes the upcoming change in state law. McDonald's CEO Steve Easterbrook has been pushed out after having a consensual relationship with an employee. That's a violation of company policy. And the Cubs are keeping first baseman Anthony Rizzo for another season. Rizzo just won his third gold glove and signed a one-year contract extension for $16.5 million. And that's today's Reset. Follow us on Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset, and I'm at Radio. I'm Jen White. Thanks for making the Reset Podcast a part of your day. Let's talk again soon.